afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Sydney Opera House and welcome to this session um, as part of the All About Women Festival um, on Invisible Women. We are, you can see us, can you? <laughs> visible, completely visible to you today. Um, I'm going to introduce our uh, guests, people on the panel, but I'd just ask uh, a few housekeeping things. Please keep your mobile phone uh, off and Twitter to your heart's content as we um, talk about a range of issues this afternoon. We've got about uh, an hour. Um, and I think we'll have a discussion for about 40 minutes and hopefully have lots of time for questions. There'll be a roving mic as well, so I'll probably just pick people out and um, you can ask your question. So, let me introduce the extraordinary women on the panel today. So, next to me, I've got Nikki Gemmell. She is the acclaimed author of five novels, including The Bride Strip Bear and its follow-up, With My Body. She has also written two non-fiction books, and uh, the French literary review Lyra um, has included her in a list of what it calls the 50 most important writers in the world. Are you, are you the only Australian, or are there a few other Australians? No, it was Tim Winton. Tim Winton and you, that's great. That's a pretty good, that's a um, very esteemed company. Um, and then next we have Brooke Magnanti. And Brooke is a research scientist, blogger, and writer, um, but probably best known to you um, by the pen name Belle de Jour. She is the author of the... Um, Intimate Adventures of a London Call Girl, which was turned into a television program called Secret Diary of a Call Girl, and her newest book is called The Sex Myth. And then finally, um, the wonderful Tara Moss is a novelist, TV presenter and journalist, and she has written and published nine best-selling novels. She's an outspoken advocate for the rights of women and children and was listed by um, as one of the 20 most influential female voices in Australia um, in 2012 by Daily Life. So welcome them all today to the panel. <clears throat> So the theme today is um, women and invisibility and, and you know, uh, naturally visibility as well. Um, now so much of feminist activism really has been about making the ideas and contributions of women visible in our community, writing ourselves into history, increasing our numbers in spaces and institutions where previously we would have been marginalised or absent. Um, and we still hear from feminists all the time about there are not enough women, where are the women, are they being overlooked, are they not being sufficiently promoted. Um, on the other hand, as the three of you are um, very successful writers, there's also a rich tradition of women writers taking on pseudonyms, um, either being anonymous or alternatively taking on the name of a man in order to write and to be judged on their writing rather than their sex. So I thought that this kind of tension is interesting and in where we can start a discussion about writing, honesty, trust, courage, visibility, invisibility, and so forth. But I want to start first with Brooke. Um, you wrote under the pen name Belle de Jour for years with huge success, and then you had to reveal your identity. And on the day of the big reveal you wrote on your blog, it feels so much better on this side, not having to tell lies, hide things from the people I care about, to be able to defend what my experience of sex work is like to all the skeptics and doubters, Anonymity has a purpose then and will always have reasons to exist for writers whose work is too damaging or too controversial to put their name to. So I want to ask you, when does being invisible work and when does it not work? Um, it's really difficult to say and I think it's hard to predict because what I hadn't realised at the time when I started blogging, uh, this was back in 2003, I'd been blogging under my real name from 2000 onwards and then started a separate anonymous blog, as Belle de Jour. Right. And at the time, people did tend to write under pseudonyms, but their real names were easily available. Right. 
So I don't think that I realized at that point quite how much of a red rag to the bull being actively anonymous mm. was going to be to the press. I don't think that the blog would have had remotely as much attention mm. if people had been able to find out through a few steps who I was or if I used a pseudonym that was less obviously fake. Mm. Um, and yeah, looking back, I think that there's a certain power in it in the sense that uh, not only did people not know who I was, so I literally could have been anyone sitting next to anyone on the tube, uh, but also as well that people kind of ascribe to anonymous voices sometimes a sort of authority as if you are speaking for an entire group of people, even mm. if you really aren't. I mean, what I was writing about was very specific to my own life, mm. but people read it as if I was the voice of all sex workers, mm. which I quite blatantly wasn't, but that was the way that it was taken and how people ran mm. with it. Yeah. Um, Nikki, you had kind of you've also written under, an, an, you know, written, a, a, again, an extraordinarily successful book anonymously, and then later your identity, identity was uh, revealed. A lot of media noise and critique, you know, both of you had to face that. What's your, I mean, your views about the benefits of anon anonymity and so forth? Well, for me, um, The Bridestrip Bear was my fourth novel, and I started writing this book um, completely intending to have my name on the front cover. And my plan was to write an excruciatingly honest account of marriage, sex within marriage, all those kind of things. And several months into it, I just found the book wasn't singing, wasn't working in any way. I was censoring myself. I was newly married, I'd had my first child, I was pregnant with my second child. Um, I was being too careful, too cautious. And then I read Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, and there were some lines in there, one of them, uh, anonymity is a refuge for women, for women writers. And as soon as I read that, refuge, I thought, ah, of course, this is a harbour, a haven for me in terms of being able to be excruciatingly honest, courageously honest, in a way I hadn't been able to under my own name. So as soon as I made that decision to just remove myself from the book, and I must admit it was also tied up with giving birth, being a mother, um, that desire, that biological desire to protect the nest in some way, this tiny little world that we had of just children, babies, husband, I wanted to protect everything about me. And what a lot of people still don't understand is that will to be anonymous came from a great love as much as anything. It came from a great love of the people around me to protect them. And it was also two gently bewildered people in their 60s and 70s. That was my parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, having to, that, I don't know if it was the same for you, Brooke, having to make that phone call and say, ah, oh, it's me. Yeah. So I found the whole process of anonymity gloriously liberating and kind of cheeky, exhilarating in terms of a woman and what I finally wanted to say, the mm. voice that I suddenly had because it was totally honest, it was mm. totally out there, brutally frank. It was all those things that I'd been wanting to say for years but had never had the courage mm. to say. Edith Wharton talks about, uh, talked about um, women having a curtain of niceness mm. that falls on them you know, during and after their teenage years. And I think a lot of us succumb to that, where mm. the pleasers, the, the nice people, the, the 
saying yes, people, when maybe inside we're screaming to say no. So when I wrote Bride in my mid-30s, it was a woman screaming, no, I don't like this. I don't want to do what you want me to do, but I've never had the courage to say. All my problems arose when I was outed. I don't know if that's the same for you, Brooke. I think it's very different but, uh, from the perspective that I think for you it was very much unexpected. And I remember reading about your outing and then also a couple of anonymous bloggers. And it's always the women who get outed, by the way. Mm. There are a lot of male anonymous bloggers as well. And they jump out and they go, it was me all along. And it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> because it's almost like uh, we have this impression that women have this secret inner knowledge you know, mm. that we're somehow more spiritually connected to the universe or something. And, uh, but I remember watching what happened with you and with a couple of anonymous bloggers in the UK, uh, Petite Anglaise, Girl With One Track Mind, and thinking, that's what's coming for me. Right. Yeah, it's I, brutal. Yeah, and yeah. I had six years to mentally prepare oh. myself for the day when that was I going to happen. I had a night happen. to prepare. That, and that's yeah. the thing. And I also had a lot of warning when it was going to happen. It was sort of rolling for a couple of weeks before I finally decided to talk to a newspaper. So and to, to go back to what you said, Nikki, you said that um, Virginia Woolf said that anonymity is a refuge for women mm. um, and that it gives you the opportunity to say stuff that perhaps society might think, no, 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 I don't want to hear that from a woman. Do you think that that could also be the case for men or do you think that we judge women more harshly, therefore net? making them need to be anonymous. So I'd be interested for, to Tara to jump in at this stage. Well, one of the questions in this panel is really about whether anonymity is, is power in itself. Mm. And I'd say it's not. It's actually a sign of disadvantage. And the only time I ever am in a position of being anonymous or having my name changed, it's always to have my gender stripped away for book sales. It's not something I do, but something that some of my international publishers choose to do. And I'll see my book come out and I'll become T. Moss in Brazil. Oh. And the reason for that is because the publisher perceives that having a female name on the front of the book is actually a liability. And is so that because of the kinds of books you write? Like if you were writing a romance novel, would that be a problem? It's a good question. Yeah. I think writing uh, crime novels probably does uh, come with its own uh, tendency towards wanting tough men who know more about crime. Mm. Having said that, there are a lot of very successful female crime mm. writers. And if we look at the statistics that Vida came up with, the women in the arts um, mm. that did the count, which some of you might be aware of, they discovered that although men and women publish about equally in the world, um, women were much less frequently reviewed, and when they did actual counts of reviews in things like Harper's Magazine and Paris Review, New York Times, they found that men were up to 416% more likely to be reviewed. This is why publishers have this idea that it is actually, at times, a liability to have a female name on the cover. So I think, I think it's sort of a reality mm. that we all have to face that in certain circles it's still a liability mm. and this refuge of anonymity um, it might be liberating to experience it but it's needing anonymity is actually a sign that you're part of a disadvantaged group or a group that's dealing with something yeah. that's very taboo. Yeah. Brooke? Nick, what, Nick, what yeah, do you mean? I, I, think, <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, what I find very interesting is, of course, you know, the, the massive publishing success of last year, Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah. uh, was, again, under initials. And you would think, what is more uh, sort of stereotypically feminine to write about than erotica? Why does this need to have the sex stripped away by using someone's initials rather than saying Erica? 
mm. which is her name, um, and, and why does it still need that? I disagree in the sense of anonymity always being a position of weakness, because I think when we look uh, historically, you have in, say, the Bible, you have voices that are anonymized because it gives this kind of, it's a global voice, mm -hmm. it's, it's the voice of the people mm -hmm. or it's the voice of the religion, it's a voice that's greater than any one person. Uh, I don't categorize my books under that at yeah. all, by the way. <laughs> I think it would be hard to make a claim for Chiclet as the voice of universal wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a very different kind of yeah. anonymity. Yeah. It's also anonymity, but it's a very different kind of anonymity. Mm -hmm. And going back to Virginia Woolf, of course, who famously say, you know, anonymous was the voice that broke the silence of, mm -hmm. of the woods, and, and anonymous was a woman. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. This, this very ancient voice writing the lyrical songs mm -hmm. and, and bringing this sort of romanticism of culture mm -hmm. forward. So, I mean, Nikki, to go back to my introduction, you clearly needed anonymity to be able to write the book that you wanted to write. Mm. And so, at that stage, you weren't necessarily thinking about the broader feminist power struggle. <laughs> You're making a very kind of personal decision about mm. what you needed to write and yeah. how to protect your immediate family. So, yeah. is, is, there a, is, there a, um, is there a tension between what you need to do as a writer and perhaps your larger responsibilities, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a feminist to the, to the struggle, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that at all at yeah. the time when I wrote yeah. um, Bride Street Bear. Um, for me, I had just gone on maternity leave yeah. from a, a, a job as a journalist. At, um, this was at the BBC. And I very quickly realised I, I lost my confidence mm. as a new mother, and I don't know why that happened, but I think this happens to a lot of women in terms of going back into that world, going back into that workplace. I can remember even thinking, I, I won't be able to sit at the computer again and type in my password. I don't know why. I just felt I can't do it. And so then I realised I had to keep supporting my family in some way. What am I going to do? I'll write a sex book, and I'll, you know, I'll, it'll just be my little one that you know, we'll just sell a hundred copies, yeah. blah, blah, blah. We'll just, this is my other life for a, a time being. And in terms of what you're saying about um, anonymity being disempowering or disenfranchising, I felt exactly the opposite. As I was writing that book, I felt on top of the world. It was the most wonderful feeling as a writer. And I hadn't felt that since my first novel, Shiver, when I wrote with a complete arrogance and innocence of, you know, I can do this. Anyone I, can do I guess this. I feel yeah. Maybe what I've said I haven't articulated well enough. No, what I no, mean to say, <laughs> what I mean to say is that if being anonymous is more liberating, it usually means that you're part of a disadvantaged group. Not that it's disempowering to write anonymously, but yeah. rather if it is safer to write anonymously, you're probably not part of the existing power structure. For instance, a man might write anonymously because what he's writing is politically dangerous. It's because he's yep. not on the side of the existing establishment. Yes. And I guess that's but, what I mean to say. It's not okay. disempowering to write anonymously, but it's usually a sign yep. that what you're writing about is taboo to people, yep. dangerous and Which can be incredibly powerful, because as soon as I made that decision to switch to anonymity, I thought I was buying into a whole kind of mystique and almost enchantment. And to have the bride strip bear by anonymous, it felt like that kind of powerful universality of this can be every woman and any woman. And I, I can remember, because what happened with me was I was outed when the book went to the Frankfurt Book Fair, a big world fair for books in Germany. And 
that was before the book had been edited. And so from that point, well, A, I went back to my editor with like a big red pen and said, they know it's me now. You know, all those really excruciatingly (laughs) honest, appalling bits in the book, we have to get rid of them. We just, I, I can't put my name to them. I'm too embarrassed. And there were tears and there were arguments. And she said at the time, Nikki, those excruciating, highly embarrassing bits of the book are the most honest bits of the book and they are the bits that will connect with your reader and they have to stay in there. And she said it with steel in her voice. We argued, we fought, she won. And um, I'm pleased that she did, but from that moment, I lost control of the book. And from then, it was things like publishers in America after Primary Colours, you know, a a man writing politically by Anonymous. um, American publishers wouldn't stock the book if it had by Anonymous on it. So from that moment, I was losing the argument of publishing this book anonymously. And I kept on saying, but it loses its whole mystique and its magic just having my name on it. Because rather than it being any woman's, every woman's mm. thoughts in a way, it becomes, it becomes oh, just you. me. It it's just you. me. Yeah. And it loses any power that it has. And I think that's why the media went bananas in a really savage if, way about it. If we it think too. about it, for example, if we think about another example here, for example, I mean, it, it surprises me that women aren't. Um, uh, more vocal or comfortable talking about something like abortion. We know mm-hmm. that a lot of women have abortions and we have them for lots of different reasons. And when women, in the times when I've been a journalist to try and actually write about women's experience, everybody wants to be anonymous because they feel immediately judged. But it mm. also makes something which is actually a reasonably common occurrence seem uh, underground. And therefore, there's lots of people who will speak for us. So to what mm. extent does putting your name to a dangerous idea or a controversial idea, um, suddenly open that idea to be, some, to be something more widely accepted? Do you think that there's a, uh, an importance about suddenly shifting from anonymity to being um, attaching your name to an idea? I think it's the sort of thing with my last book, The Sex Myth, yeah. that because that was the first book written under my real name, yeah. that I knew there would be people coming to the book, not just reading the book, because of what's in it, but because of who they think I am, and using that as a filter through which to perceive the book. What was extraordinary to me after my identity became known was the extent to which the media tried to define me by my relationships with men. My father, whom I hadn't spoken to in six years at that point, uh, an ex whom I hadn't spoken to in some time, Mm. and that that was somehow more important and more influential to my story Mm. than what I actually wrote and what I brought to it. I do think that there's a sort of fear when women are writing that, as you say, about protecting your family and protecting the unit, that men do seem to be free of when they're writing, of the, I'm just going to put it out there and let what happens, Mm -hmm. happens. And you see this very much in the the whole sort of genre of the political autobiography. What men write in political autobiography and what women write in political autobiography. It's Mm. completely different. It's as if the men have gone, fuck it all, I'm, I'm, I'm telling all now, and it's out there with women, it's like, when I'm 80 and everyone I know is dead, <laughs> that's when yes, you're going to yes. get the real that's story. Right. The Emily yeah, Dickinson, yeah. you know. Yeah, and that even and when we're when we're trying to be, you know, uh, radically honest and and brutally honest, mm-hmm. that there is still that little kernel that that just sort of we're bringing with us of yeah. the what are other people going to think 
of the other people in my life? What are other mm -hmm. people going to think of me? Yeah. And, and it's a kind of baggage that comes yeah. with and it. And I think it's also an age thing, because I think when we're younger, we as women, it's going back to that Wharton curtain of niceness that befalls all of us. Are you saying that? I've never been nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just mean, for so many of us, we're so, we want to be so tightly in control of that persona that we have created for ourselves. And that, for me, was part of the whole bride thing. I didn't want to think that people thought I had all these thoughts in me. And that was in my mid-30s. And now, you know, 10 years on, it's like, ah, oh, whatever, okay. let but it all it, hang out, I, I found my voice. Is, is and that sort of desire to control almost endemic to being a woman in the sense that we know if we lose control of it, that's it, you don't get a second chance. No, and, and I don't know if you were the same. Did you feel like you lost control of Belle de Jour when you were outed? Because I felt like I lost control of Not Bride. Not really, because a lot of the okay. things that happened that were negative, I expected to happen. And so it was a bit of, it was more of a management thing. And I do think mm. there is, you know, it was sort of looking at two things. People who have their voices taken away from them, people who have anonymity because it's taken out by some publisher, mm and they say, I'm sorry, your name cannot go on this book, mm. and then people who actively embrace it. <coughs> and then as well, when you lose the anonymity, the people for whom it's a surprise, you're long lensed okay. at your door, versus the people who are going, it's coming, and I'm gonna make the best of it. It's a, mm. whole, it's a whole different lens, I think, mm. of, of I looking at that. I wanna go back to this whole idea of the women who are most visible in our society and the ones who are invisible. So I wanna ask Tara a little bit, when you look around Australian society, what do you think are the, who are the powerful, visible women that you, you see? Well, I think actually the name of this panel is kind of interesting, Invisible Women, because invisibility is not really the problem. We, mm. we visually see a lot of women. We see women in advertisements and celebrity magazines, and the women who mm. are in politics are often uh, very visible. But the fact is that they're quite outnumbered in mm. reality, and we can, I think, lose uh, the sense of that because of the visuals. So I'm very much uh, interested in representation and misrepresentation, and I don't have the experience with anonymity mm. that the other panelists do here. But what I do have an experience with is misrepresentation. So if you look at, uh, for instance, that study that was done in the UK where they found that 78% of the uh, front page headlines were written by men. Does that matter in and of itself? Well, it might because if you look at what they came up with, they found that 76% of the experts quoted mm. were men. Mm. And 79% of the victims that were quoted were women. Mm. And that is not uh, an accurate representation of real life. Mm. Um, and we, we can get these kind of um, perceptions of gender, perceptions of what's normal. Mm. That's quite skewed as a result of um, basically not having a, a parity out there mm. in terms of the voices being heard mm. and also just uh, not seeing real women's lives, real women's stories. Mm. We don't see a lot of women represented after the age of 50, for example. Mm. We don't see a lot of women represented um, in all these kind of various um, more subtle aspects of our lives. Yeah. It's, it's very much as the love interest in, in entertainment or you know, we have a prime minister and we think, oh, she's a woman, everything should change. Yeah, well, yeah. she's still hugely outnumbered. Mm. It doesn't change the whole kind of um, the system and the, the, mm. the, the structures that exist there. So I do think that the representation is important, not just in numbers, but also in content. Yeah. Um, and another little stat, I'm, I'm obsessed with stats. Uh, we have this real perception of women as victims, as I said, yeah. and that is informed by what we see um, in terms of headlines and a focus of the media. But we don't realize that, say, the Australian Bureau of Statistics recorded that in 2011, 
and men between the ages of 15 and 24 were more than twice as likely to be mm. murdered as women in the same age group. And we're always worried about these young women, you know, getting murdered by people and putting themselves out there and putting themselves in danger by having a drink or wearing a short skirt. Mm. And it's a misrepresentation of reality. And I guess uh, you spoke before about feminists mm. being focused on this. I'm one of those people yeah. and that's the reason because not only is there an underrepresentation, but there's a misrepresentation that I think is a natural extension yeah, of yeah. that. Yeah. One thing that, that actually, because going back to the Cochrane study from The Guardian about the uh, percentage in the UK of the headlines written by women and also the numbers of experts, in yeah. response to that, mm -hmm. the BBC have tried to institute a program for training up, yeah. media training yeah. women experts and we'll have you on a database. And the thing that... I They've I done actually, that in Australia actually recently as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And I opted out of this because I yeah. thought, I am self-evidently an expert in the things. Why? Because I'm a yeah. woman. Do I have to prove to yeah, the BBC? Yeah, yeah that I am good enough to go on their database yeah. to be contacted, yeah. whereas the men are self-evident experts. Yeah. They're not being pulled in for yeah. media training and saying, you, you have to go on our little away day yeah. and you've got yeah. to have our little, you know, you've got to tick our qualities checklist before we'll phone you up to be on Newsnight. Oh. And I, I did actually find that difference to yeah. be appalling, yeah. as opposed to women experts come to us, yeah. tell us what you're expert yeah. in, that, that you had to jump a barrier yeah. to be accepted Brooke, how much did the um, channel of the internet give you an opportunity to be able to write about what you wanted to write? I mean, if you, if you go online, you recognise that the kinds of things, for example, like miscarriage or, or abortion or, you know, issues that you might have with sex in your marriage, they're all discussed there <laughs> quite openly. And, um, you know, women are active users of those media, women of all different kinds of generations. To so what extent do you think that the... I'd ask, I'd ask all of you that the channel of um, digital made that possible, this ability well, for us the, to be able It's the democratisation of the public discussion, mm -hmm. I think. And because those stats show us that, that women aren't actually enjoying a kind of equal level of um, discussion, they're not being asked to be experts, so they're not having the opportunities, mm -hmm. they're taking the opportunities that they can get yeah. and they're taking it into their own hands, which is why we see this sort of explosion of online participation by women. Um, it doesn't answer the questions yeah. about anonymity yeah. in terms of taboo topics, yeah. but it does certainly mean that now you can just, uh, you don't have a middleman or yeah. middle person, yeah. if you will, who's going to decide whether you'll be edited out or whether you're going to end up in the finished product. Yeah. You can just go on and write on your own blog. Yeah. And I know for me, because my problem um, wasn't anonymity but misrepresentation, yeah. my whole career has changed in the last three, four years since I've begun blogging. Yeah. Because it was no longer um, a matter of someone else representing me, mm -hmm. it was a matter of me representing yeah. myself and making yeah. very clear who, who yeah. I was. Yeah. So I do think that democratization of the public conversation is, is yeah. a, a huge change, it's wonderful for women, it's got that negative side because the anonymity on the internet sometimes uh, is used as a shield by bullies and by yes, I must admit uh, for me. For threats. <laughs> oh. you know. So it's been a bad experience for you? Well, I also write a, a weekly column in yeah. the Australian, yeah. in the Saturday Australian, and there's an email address that I can be contacted on. Um, and do you check that email out? <laughs> do you avoid it so A lot of the time I wish yeah. that I hadn't. Yeah. Particularly this weekend, I mentioned yeah. Julia Gillard in my column yesterday. So, of course, it's just a red rag to, the, uh, to a bull of all yeah. the bullies and 
yeah. the vitriolic haters. And what are they saying about it? Because I did want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about well, it's, her it's as a usually, visible woman. Well, it's usually female. Right. I get that my, my worst trolls yeah. are, are, seem to most often be female. And, you know, they'll never sign their missives, but then their name is on the yes. um, email <laughs> at the top. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's an anonymity failure. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is an anonymity failure. <laughs> And it's extraordinary. I, I find female viciousness and bullying yeah. is, is fascinating psychologically um, because a woman knows another woman's Achilles heel. Right. You know, they, a lot of them, they, their standard line seems to be, it must be terrible having you as a mother or your poor yes. children, how could you be their mother? They yes. really must be so ashamed of you or not want you as their mother. Yes. That, it's really personal, yes. vicious stuff. Um, and a woman... And does that ever get to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah. it does. I hope there are no um, trolls in the audience today who think, great, I'm going to go home and email her. Um, um, but what's your internal yeah. dialogue to make? I never, I never respond, and usually yeah. I can tell within the first three words, sentence, the tone of the email, yeah. so I, I ignore it, yeah. and that's my defence. But um, there was a woman, and I can't remember her name, she wrote a fascinating book about the female brain, and her yeah. theory was that... Um, uh, when women, uh, they have babies, uh, in the, you know, in Neanderthal times, the men were the hunter-gatherers, they went off, and so uh, women were left as a group to fend for themselves and their children. Now it's, well, you know, the men, they go off to work, whatever, so it's always these clusters of women around children, biologically, and if a woman's different in some way, then the rest of the group will ostracise her. They will make her feel different and they will henpeck her to the point where they want her to conform. They mm -hmm. will crush her. And every time I get one of those really viciously vitriol vitriolic emails from a female reader, it feels like they want to crush me. Yeah. They want me to stop doing okay. what I'm doing. And it, fe it feels like the other female chicks just want to put me in my yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. So I must admit, for me, I, so I for don't me, read a lot of that's it now. What about you, Brooke? It's, it's such a flip side of, of anonymity. I mean, I've definitely had uh, my ups and downs with trolls, both anonymous and not anonymous. Mm -hmm. And some really, I don't know if any of you were at my skeptics talk last night, where I actually uh, showed some of the threats that I and other sex workers get. Wow. Um, from both women and men, uh, different types of threats and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think the most memorable recent one was that I should be gang raped while my husband is made to watch and then killed. Um, was that a man or a woman that said that? It was a woman. And I didn't take, but I didn't take it seriously because I don't think of it as a credible threat. Yeah. But going back to the question of anonymity, yeah. there's a part of me that absolutely rails against that because how dare people be bullies? Yeah. And then on the other hand, I know that uh, it would have affected how I was able to write if yeah. I didn't have access to the exact same type yeah. of anonymity. Yeah. And the thing that, that being an anonymous author in the age of the internet gave me was that I could manage my own anonymity. Yeah. People mm -hmm. at the publisher did not have to know who yeah. I was yeah. at all. They yeah. didn't have to cover it for yeah. me. So you look back at, say, when Jonathan Swift was writing anonymously, mm -hmm. he was having somebody else copy out his manuscript so yeah. his handwriting wouldn't be recognized, yeah. but that meant he had to put all of his trust in other people who could yes. have revealed his yes. secrets. Yeah. Um, in the age of the internet, you can, unless, of course, you send it from an email with your name attached, mm -hmm. you can manage your own anonymity yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it can, it can be truly 
a secret. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do, think, I do think a lot of women who are in the public eye discuss this issue of trolls, and it's quite a common thing. Um, and a lot of women have, I think, argued fairly compellingly that women who don't fit inside the box, if you will, t tend to get more vitriol. The vitriol I get is, you know, 98% from men and quite violent and sexual. And that seems to be, you know, whatever trolls you attract, it seems to be something that um, uh, people do feel they have the right to, to put you down, to tell you what they think. Uh, and perhaps that's less common uh, for men, unless, like I said, they're part of a more disadvantaged group people are used to, um, to, to pushing around. So, you know, again, I think anonymity and the internet, they go hand in hand. It's part and parcel of what this democratization involves. Uh, but I think the important thing is to make sure that women who are trolled like that don't change what they're doing as a result of it. Because I think that is a real danger. And I have seen some extremely talented, bright women who are doing really important work. I've seen them remove themselves from the spotlight. Yeah, it chips away at you, which yeah. is such a shame, and it, it yeah. shouldn't. And I understand mm. the reasons, yeah. and yeah. often they have children and they're, they're concerned about safety and things like that, but, you know, I think, I think it's really important yeah. to try to stay out there and to, to remain yeah. determined in, in these voices. If, if you're poking in the, in the right fireplace, that's when you yeah. get the sparks. Yeah. <laughs> so, I just wanted to ask um, a question so we've been talking to Brooke a little bit about um, Julie Gillard and how she's presented by the media and how she's uh, talked about. And she's probably our most visible, in many ways, our most visible woman, um, certainly in public life. She's, there's things about her that um, people would consider to be remarkable, even though they're probably not remarkable. She hasn't got children. She's unmarried, although she's got a partner. Um, and she's a redhead. You know, <laughs> so there are various <laughs> other things that make her stand out. Um, and then, of course, there's an ongoing debate about the extent to which the criticism of her is fueled by misogyny, or is it fueled by, you know, are we actually um, critiquing her on her merits and so forth? So, when you think about the kind of issue about visibility in women, how do you think it affects her being so visible? And do you think it's a a good or a bad lesson for young women about how she's treated? Well, we can get focused on the negative and say. Yeah. You know, as a, as a woman, I'm seeing what politics are like and it looks pretty ugly, yeah. right? But at the same time, it's normalizing women in positions of power, visibly yeah. in positions of power. I think that in and of itself is a powerful thing, yeah. even if it comes yeah. with this sort of backlash. And she seems relatively unperturbed by it. Yeah. Mm. But we you know, say she seems to be able oh, to handle us, it much better than everybody else. what goes on behind closed doors. I mean, for yes. all oh. we know, she is secretly and anonymously a member of a boxing club somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Just taking it out, That's you know. Right. Her and Wayne Swan, they've got the, they've got the soap, they're beating each other up. I don't yeah. think that's so secret, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually called <laughs> Question Time. Yeah, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I, I think her legacy will be perhaps not so much a political legacy, but a way of a being one. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how she is, how she conducts herself mm. as a powerful, visible female. And I do think that history will be much kinder on her than what we are seeing at the moment. I think she can be very galvanizing to a younger generation in particular in terms of stoicism under fire. Um, uh, kind of self-belief, uh, self-belief, yeah. uh, articulateness, courage. Yeah. Um, I I think she's 
an extraordinary role model, and I probably the trolls will be out in force again, yeah. you know, this afternoon. Well, I mean, um, what I like about it is that you've used the word stoicism, which is something that we so commonly associate with men, mm. that, that the sort of feminine flip side of that is silence, that she is silenced, mm. because they could mm. look like the same thing, and it is really all about the context of her visibility, mm. you know, that it looks like she is being stoic, it doesn't look like she's being a punching bag, no. and there's a, there's a completely different things, but they can be read mm. so, you know, so differently. I like that... Um, Give me your best shot. Yeah. In the meantime, take your best <laughs> shot, you know? Yeah. It's good to see that, whether you agree or disagree with certain policies, and I've, I've certainly been very vocal about some policies that I'm not happy about, as many people have been. The thing is, you've got, um, you've got the first, it took 109 years to have a, a woman who was a prime minister in this country, and this is one of the first countries in the world where women had the vote and the right to take mm -hmm. office. It is kind of really overdue mm -hmm. um, that there's a woman prime minister. Unfortunately, it's something of a thing that she is a woman, and one day it will no longer be a thing. Yeah. Uh, gender will no longer be such a huge issue, I would like to think. But this is uh, one step at a time. Yeah. And I think we can say the same probably of Obama. It's interesting it happened around the same time. You have the first African-American president, and you have seen the political discourse in America be the tone has been lowered, just like the political, the tone of the political discourse, I think, in Australia has been lowered. And I think that is the, the backlash that comes before change, yeah. or comes yes. with change. Yeah. And I, I also think it will be a long, long time before we see another female prime minister. And you look at Thatcher, you know, yeah. Britain, it's several decades on, we still haven't seen I'm, another I'm female. I'm putting my money on Theresa May really? for the next the generation. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, because the, the way that she has handled it, again, talking about being a very visible woman and just putting her head down and getting on with the job in a way that we do not expect from women mm -hmm. at the home office. I do not agree with any of her policies, mainly because as a migrant to the UK, I've been subjected to yeah. her policies. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the way in which she is visible is a way that is uh, blessedly free of objectification. Yeah. Mm. Even right. aside from the fact that everybody always takes notice of her shoes, the rest of her, there really isn't very much commentary on the way she cuts her hair yeah. or the things that she wears, the way there was with, say, Hillary Clinton in the equivalent position in the United States when she was Secretary of State. Right. Mm. We might open up to questions now. We've got about 20 minutes of questions. So the young lady with the, uh, with the band, yeah. would you like to stand up? And somebody's going to come and bring you a microphone, if you just wait. Um, I was just wondering if any of you could give us some specific strategies for coping when you have these terrible comments made towards you because it's really hard for me to see how it can't affect you personally and obviously you've had to deal with it a lot um, and in the small amount that I've had to deal with it in my career I find it really difficult to not take it personally and have mm. it just cut like eat away at you um, so if you can have any specific strategies for how to deal with it that would be great like everybody respond to that if possible. <laughs> my, my dad and had the strategies can be alcohol or <laughs> that's what you like. Don't get me started. My, my dad had a great bit of advice for me very early on. Um, he's, he's a widow and he had to be my mum and dad for me. And he had great advice. He said, consider the source. And if there's someone whose views I don't respect, who doesn't respect mine, I consider it a good review. <laughs> yeah. um, I, would, I would say, you know, Gather the people who are on your side around you. One thing that I experienced being anonymous was being cut off 
from a support system. So if you're in the position where you're able to reach out to people and just get the, the support in the back, it matters so much. The other thing that I always tell people is this brilliant book, The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker, mm -hmm. and it helps you to put these things into context and to sort out what are the credible threats from the not credible threats, what is danger and what is noise. And there comes a point at which I think everybody does go through these ups and downs, where sometimes you're just having a bad day. Unplug yourself from the internet. You yes, know, yes, that's, yes. Uh, do it periodically, even if it's something that you're just doing in your spare time or if you have to do it as part of your work. Give yourself office hours on the internet. Don't still be on there at 3 a.m. Nothing good ever happened you on the internet after <laughs> Um, I would say for me, and I don't know if people would generally go along with this, but during the Bride Strip Bear anonymity unveiling thing, which took me three years to recover from, I feel like my mistake was I showed my vulnerability. And for me, it was like a little chick that had started to bleed, and the rest of those little chicks all around me tried to peck me to death. Um, and I think that's human nature in a way. And I look at Julia Gillard, she does not show a crack, an, an inch, a millimetre of vulnerability. And I did at the time. I, I cried, I walked out of interviews. Philip Adams, Late Night Live, just walked out. Um, I feel like, you know, in retrospect, those things were the wrong thing to do because I showed vulnerability, I showed weakness, and people pounced on me and kept on pouncing on me for that. I mean, I think other people may disagree with that because I know that honesty, vulnerability also connects. As a, as a writer, I feel like that's my most powerful tool is telling the truth. But when you're out there publicly being pecked, I think if I'd had my time again, I would have done it differently. I don't know about you, Brooke. So you isn't there a sense that you can't win? Because one of the... One of the great criticisms of Julie Gillard is she's wooden and robotic mm -hmm. and all the rest of it and she doesn't, she doesn't have that kind of, she doesn't seem human, but yeah. perhaps if she did feel human. I think know. it's a gender well, thing because... Yeah, I, something that I think that is, that is stronger about her than was about Thatcher was Thatcher very much softened her image to become acceptable to her cabinet and mm. to her MPs and to the public. Mm as the first female prime minister. The whole, the whole pussy blow blouse, yeah. her little, you know, the, the little bag and everything. And she even had elocution lessons to sort mm. of make her voice sound yeah. a certain way. And, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing that if, I mean, there are probably politicians who are doing it. I like that Julia Gillard is not visibly doing no. any mm. of that. She is not frilling it up in no. any way. But I, I feel in terms of gender, um, if she did, if she cried or showed her vulnerability, you know, you can imagine, oh, she's being so female and weak and whatever. But I still remember the power of Bob Hawke crying. Yes. Crying over Tiananmen Square, you know, what was that, two decades yes. ago, however long ago it was, three decades ago. Um, and when a, when a man cries or shows tears, treated differently. It's okay, he yeah. could drink beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's all, it all... It all evens <laughs> yeah, up. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, quest any more questions? Eva. As a fairly well-known public motor mouth who sort of cops a lot of the flag that people are talking about, I'd like to raise another issue, and I mean, I do have the trolls as well, and that's the one that puzzles me, and I mean, maybe the people there, in a sense, what you're talking about gives us a cue, is when you get onto things like Q&A, which I've been got on, you say, why aren't there more women on this program? The response comes back, we approach woman after woman, and they won't get up and do it. 
you get the same sort of response. I say something at a conference and women edge up to me afterwards and say, I really agreed with what you'd said there. And I say, well, why didn't you say it there? They say, oh, I'm not like you. I can't stand up and mm -hmm. do it in public. And I suppose one of the things that we need to think about, and I'd be interested in the comments of the panel, is how do we give women the courage to cope with obviously the difficult things you're talking about, because otherwise we will be invisible if we're not prepared to stand up and talk. I know. Yeah. So Tara, <laughs> I might get you to respond to that first. Well, I think we need to encourage women to be visible and vocal, and we need to be fair about what they have to say, because Study after study has shown that when women get up, they take something like 60% of the floor time and they're more likely to be rudely interrupted. Women mm -hmm. notice that kind of thing, yeah. you know? Uh, so, so that response doesn't happen in a vacuum, obviously. They've, they've learned this. So I think we need to talk about it. We need to be visible. We need to be vocal. And, and understand that asking for 50%, asking for our half is actually not a big ask. It's not too much. It's not selfish. Yeah. It's, we shouldn't be grateful. We sh it's not, it's, it, it should be just normal. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, th I think showing that it can be done, being unapologetic about it is a good start, yeah. and also being really fair to other women, whether we agree or disagree with yeah. them, yeah. and recognize that their contributions, you know, are yeah. as valid. Yeah. Kind of notice yeah. that um, the bias that happens in our own brains. Yes, we have to value so each other, we all, be kind we all experience to each other. This. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. give each other, other the, the, the courage to crack out of that careful persona that we all create around ourselves of, oh, what are people going to think of me? And I've been asked to go on Q&A. Oh, you're going on tomorrow night. And I've been asked yeah, to go on in I, June. I'm, I, I just feel like I will be that one that's the target of the Twitter attacks. <laughs> you welcome it, I don't. <laughs> that's great. I wish I was more like well, you. It, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing, I mean, I was going to give the jokey answer. If you want more women on Q&A, you should book them before they know what they're in for, like they did with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do know what I'm in for. Oh, P.S. Jermaine Greer tomorrow as well. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be brilliant. It'll be absolutely brilliant. But, but it's not a popularity contest. Yeah, no. And I don't yeah, think that yeah. every man who opens his mouth thinks everybody has to like me and like yeah. what I have to say. Yeah, so we've got to get rid of... Yeah, feel the same way, in, in yeah. the way we do. We obsess over what other people are going to think about us. Yeah. And I feel like in office politics, whatever, men are like, oh, this is me, take it or leave it. But it's women... Gonna, it's, I'd like to... I take a very optimistic view where I think that this is happening, Eva, gradually. And that, you know, women, maybe are used to going, oh, no, no. I think it is happening gradually, and I think that as more women are vocal and as these stats, yeah. which upset me, gradually change, then what becomes normal will change. What, what's interesting to me as a social researcher is if, when I spend time in groups of young women who are in their late teens, early 20s, they're actually incredibly confident. In fact, mm. much more confident than the boys of that same age, <laughs> much more yeah, articulate. Yeah, yeah. And then my concern is something happens. Late mm. 20s, early 30s, it can be around jobs, it can be around motherhood, it can be around a range mm -hmm. of things. And I was interested to hear you, Nikki, Nikki, go from that point of your first child and feeling like, I, I can't do that. So we, I think it's, it's we're, we've empowered an extraordinary young generation of women and then how we support them as a society and as a culture to mm. navigate those different stages throughout their life. And I, I did a book seven years ago on Generation Y, and I remember all the young women I interviewed 
They said, being a woman is not a glass ceiling. Having a baby is the new glass ceiling. And my life, once that happens, is going to be very different. Mm. Well, so well, it's about how we, how we negotiate. And, and you know, the women who don't want to have babies, but you know, as, they, as they move along. And also as they get older, and as, as we know, women over 50 suddenly become this amorph, you know, invisible in our society in so many ways. Well, it's good is that we're talking voice. about that. Yeah. I think yeah, it's yeah. good that we're talking exactly. about it and identifying it, and fewer women are accepting that. So yeah. it will change. Exactly. And now, you know, of people under 30 in Australia, more women have university qualifications than men now, you know? There is a shift happening. It, what happens to those women when they're in the workforce? These are, these are new challenges. We need yeah. to come up with better social policies, essentially, yeah. so that we can allow flexibility in families and all the things that need to take place for that trajectory to continue. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, as you said, the new, the new challenge yeah. in a lot of ways. Another question? Sorry, yes, yeah. Sorry, yes? Hi, I was just wondering what the panel thought about um, women who write online being termed mummy bloggers, almost as a diminishing term. I mean, I'm a mother and I, don't, I, I think that I'm fine and my opinions are valid, but it almost is used as a way of degrading people, women, with a valid voice who are using this forum to actually get their voices heard. Well, I think uh, Clementine Ford is speaking at the festival. She's not a mum and she's been termed a mummy blogger Has a few times. Yeah. yeah. Why? Because she could one day be yeah. a mother. And I have apparently... A uterus blogger. That's really well, what they should call You know, mummy often just means women over 25. Someone wants That's to describe right. me in print as milf-like and it's like, I've never had a child. Yeah. <laughs> or, or it's mummy porn, the Fifty Shades yeah. of Grey. Yeah, exactly. Or exactly. chiclet. I mean, I, I've written some... Chiclet when you're younger, mummy porn yeah. when you're older. As, as a crime writer, I've found myself in the chiclet section. Mm. If you're looking for chocolate, you're not going to be very happy <laughs> <laughs> with the high-bodied count and the sort of forensic yeah. stuff. So yeah. I do think these terms are sometimes used dismissively, and I think that is kind of a, a complicated conversation, actually, because you think, what, what's wrong with being a mummy blogger? Yeah. But the fact is it is used in a way to dismiss women's voices, and but that is a men. legitimate problem. I think it's often um, male commentators who use that term, because certainly for me, I, I read a lot of mummy bloggers, and I love the freshness and the honesty of their voice. They just let it all hang out. And for me, I find that very powerful, and I've never thought of it as a derogatory thing at all. But then, you know, you open up the Daily Telegraph, and it's like Julia Gillard meeting the mummy bloggers, um, and that's where you get that kind of sneer. Uh, so I feel like that divide is there along gender lines. Yeah. Uh, yes? So just wait, there's a, I'm, I'm making you run around. It's not actually gender discrimination. <laughs> I had a question specifically for Tara. I'm currently writing an extended response on the marginalisation of the female voice within contemporary literature. And I just wanted to ask Tara whether she thinks that this misrepresentation comes from your gender as being a female, or whether this stigma comes from your associated genre, which is crime writing. Um, well, some of the most successful crime writers in the world are women. If you look at Linda LaPlante, Patricia Highsmith, Patricia Cornwell. Um, but I think that the concept of merit is still gendered, whether we'd like it to be or not. All of the stats we've seen collected by Vita, even scientific studies they've done where they've taken identical applications, put them towards to scientists and said, which one of these people is more qualified? They pick the one with the male name attached, even though it's identical to the one with the female name attached. And none of us is completely um, outside of that. You know, We don't live in our own bubble. We all have a certain level of 
bias within ourselves. So I don't think it's specific to the crime genre. I do think it's a widespread thing, and I don't think it's the fault of one gender. I think we're all kind of uh, influenced by this level of bias. So I don't know if that's helpful for your paper, but I don't think it's uh, limited to literature, and I don't think it's limited to the genre I write in. And I would say as an aside to that as well, as I did get a bit of criticism with my last book in that my name is on it as Dr. Brooke Mignonti. And obviously there are a lot of people with a, a PhD in, in, in area of medical science, um, a lot of people with similar sort of qualifications and particularly men who just go by their names, Ben Goldacre, Simon Singh, partly because you don't forget that they have that qualification and it almost feels like as a woman I've got to keep putting that forward so that people don't forget you know there's actually mm. an academic side of me that took up far more time than the sex work ever did yeah. but then of course the flip side is you get criticized for being a bit pushy which I've never really particularly had a problem with but I can see where it puts other people off yeah. to get that kind of criticism yeah. of how dare you be a bit pushy and keep reminding us about this thing you are qualified to talk about yeah. Yeah. so the gentleman yep You've spoken a lot about uh, deliberate invisibility like anonymity, but one thing that struck me when Tara was talking about getting published and simply changing your name to T Moss, it's now assumed you're male. Um, this kind of um, accidental invisibility where it's just assumed that any kind of genderless name is male, how much of a problem is that? I think, um, again, it's not specific to one gender. We all kind of do it, and there's that uh, tale. In fact, one of my friends here who's a doctor tells that story about the, the, the guy who's in the car crash yeah, with yeah, his yeah. dad, and yeah. then he goes into surgery, and the doctor can't perform it because yeah. this is my son. And everybody goes, how can that be? And it's like, well, obviously, she's his mother, and you don't make that connection. We know this stuff is subtle and it's ingrained into all of us. So um, I do think there's an assumption when you see a name with initials that it's a male uh, authority, a male doctor, a male writer, whomever. Mm -hmm. You know, what can we do with that except to continue to, to change the, what's normal? And that's not going to happen overnight. I don't know how else to, to kind of <laughs> answer that except to say I, I wasn't very happy with yeah. my Brazilian publisher because <laughs> I would much rather just be me and yeah. I don't see why uh, it should make my work more valid to, to just have a, um, an initial. But it certainly worked for J.K. Rowling and yeah. P.D. James yeah. and I've, I've got a situation coming out at the end of the year. I've, I've, I've written a children's book for the first time ever for like nine-year, ten-year-old readers and my publishers are in a tiz because it's like... We can't have children picking up a Nicky Gamble book. But then some of them are saying, it's oh, It's going to be the no. babysitter's strip bear. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> They're going to be having orgies oh, in the playground. I know, I know, I know. So, so they've decided... It's not called the babysitter strip bear, is it? Don't no, worry. Because no, 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 no. <laughs> that would be a mistake. No, but it, so they've decided on, after much tussling amongst the marketing department and the sales department, how on earth, earth are we going to present this to the world? It's going to be by N.J. Gemmell. Right. So yeah. people, if they want to, they'll know it's me, but then, you know, it's, it's not going to be completely by that author. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I like buying into the whole thing because th there is a big problem with boys reading. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if a little boy is going to pick that up because he thinks mm. that's by a boy as yeah. opposed to a girl, then 
That's great. I have no well, problem. Well, it's great, except it doesn't change anything. And, that, and that's the problem with the anonymity thing we're discussing, is that it, it may be empowering to be anonymous, and I have no problem with anyone being anonymous to get things done, but it doesn't change perceptions. And you, you, need, you need each woman, say, if she's speaking out on miscarriage, on abortion, on whatever issue, if she's willing to stand up and be, I'm a, I'm a full human being who can talk about this issue and I'm not ashamed of it, that changes things arguably faster than the anonymous, but you do the anonymous because you have to. Yeah. So that's, I guess, my argument from the start was that it no, does I, show I, that you're I, I in that disadvantaged group. I completely agree because there's so much more power in being an ex-sex worker yeah. when people know my name, partly because so much of the criticism was this could not be written by a woman. Yeah. This woman does not ah, exist. Right. And, it's, and I, I know that, that I'm too. not the only author who had that, not mm -hmm. just from sex work, but obviously Melissa P. Mm -hmm. A uh, hundred strokes of the brush before bed. Mm -hmm. She actually outed herself because she was tired of being accused of being a man yeah, yeah, yeah. when she was 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was that was extraordinarily brave. But it was almost like the arrogance of youth before the veil of niceness yeah, descends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That she was this Sicilian teenager who said, "Right, I'm going to claim it. I'm claiming my voice, and I'm having mm -hmm. that." And then, of course, has gone on to write yeah. many more books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Susan. Hi, I think actually, Tara, you've almost answered my question, which was about the concept. Um, we talked about it in an earlier session about women talking about their periods and abortion and miscarriage, which are things that are not on the public discourse. And I know from TV work that even the mention of abortion bumps it up a rating. And you kind of go, well, why? It's, it's a commonplace, I mean, more commonplace than most people would like, obviously but it's a commonplace procedure, it's a medical procedure, and on a certain drama I know of, they even called it the procedure, because if they used the word abortion, it would bump up the rating and wouldn't get the audience that they wanted. And I guess I'm curious of what do you think, can women change that as women in the media and writers? Well, I think we need more women in the media and more women who are writers. I mean, I spoke and talking about it. Yeah, well, I spoke before about women uh, publishing about equal numbers of books, that is true. However, there aren't about equal numbers of women working, uh, writing television shows, producing television shows, directing. You know, it took 82 years for any woman to win an Oscar for Best Director, and the Gina Davis uh, uh, Institute for Media Study or for Gender Studies, they looked at working directors and working writers in America and found that well over 85% of them were men. So. You know, it necessarily skews things. Of course it does. And if women are outnumbered on screen three to one, which is the case, then obviously you're just not going to see as much variety in terms of what women mm. are capable of, what kind of characters are out there, what women's lives are actually like. So I think it's just about participation. Don't be afraid to be involved in the public discussion. Be part of it, you know. Don't, yeah. don't be invisible. I think women have to be better at putting themselves forward, saying, yeah. I can do this, give this job to me, saying it loudly and saying it clearly and confidently. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the bias in review pages, in literary pages, about how many male books are reviewed compared to female books. But I, it was a, a, a literary editor of either the Oz or the Sydney Morning Herald, when it, this question was put to him, came back and said, but actually, it's the male reviewers who say to me, I want this job, I want this book, I want to do this. But much more so than, than women. And he said, that's just a fact of life, so of course I'm going to give it to yeah. the one that's going, me, 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 me. Yeah. We're not good at doing that. I mean, Eva Cox, who, who stood up earlier, she's 
she was telling me about studies where essentially women aren't as good about asking for raises and they're not as confident about applying for jobs unless they feel they're totally qualified for them. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a set of difference. But when you're talking about those stats, the thing with Avita stats as well is that regardless of the gender of the person doing the reviewing, they were f like up to 417% more likely to review the book written by the man. Mm. And I guess that it, that's whether they're women or not. And same with judging panels for, uh, for literary awards. And that means that we have a gendered idea of merit that's insidious and is unconscious. And that is all of our responsibility to change, you know, ev everyone, I think, to, be, to try to be aware of that bias and work actively against it until it is no longer there. Yeah. I think that's a good point to end. We've got 30 seconds. So I'd <laughs> like to thank uh, our panel and everybody else. Thank you for attending today. Thank you.